just like floored that Kurt Cobain was in Cannon Falls. And like, no one comes to Cannon Falls. And, and I don't even think we knew that they were here until like years later. I've heard uh, about, what's his name's wife, Courtney Love, going to the uh, antique store and just buying all kinds of things. Really? Yes. <laughs> Nirvana weren't just a popular band. For a period in the early 1990s, they were synonymous with grunge music and all alternative culture. Their singles like Smells Like Teen Spirit and this song, All Apologies, came to define the sound of a generation. So what if you learned that these larger-than-life rock stars weren't just being played on every radio station, weren't just performing in your hometown, but that they were setting up shop to cut their next record at your grandparents' house? Along with albums by PJ Harvey, Live, and Soul Asylum, Nirvana's In Utero was recorded at a secluded studio in small-town Minnesota called Pachyderm, a rustic home and recording facility with a surprising history. This is The Current Rewind, the podcast putting music's unsung stories on the map. I'm Andrea Swenson. In this episode, we'll dive deep into the history of Pachyderm Studio. We'll take you to Cannon Falls in the middle of a Minnesota winter to explore the four-and-a-half-square-mile town on the Cannon River, which is home to about 4,000 people. And we'll take you inside Pachyderm's historic home and studio to meet some special guests, including the very family who first built the property in the 60s, many of whom hadn't been inside the space in decades. For this episode of The Current Rewind, we spoke to 14 people, including Dave Perner of Soul Asylum, Lori Barbero of Babes in Toyland, engineer Steve Albini, Dave King of The Bad Plus, and the members of Gully Boys, who all together have witnessed the studios and the house's history. Like so many Minnesota music stories, the tale of Pachyderm Studio begins with a family. In one of our first interviews for this episode, our producer Cecilia Johnson sat down with a group of Pachyderm VIPs, Dick, Martha, and Karen Mensing. Dick is the eldest son of Don and Marion Mensing, who originally built Pachyderm to be their home. He clearly admired his entrepreneurial dad and elegant mother, both of whom passed away in the mid-1980s. Sitting next to Dick were his wife, Martha, and daughter, Karen. You'll hear from Dick first, then Karen. My grandfather, my dad's dad, started a malting company in Cannon Falls uh, in 1939 and um, asked dad and mom to come and work with him. Mm. And it ended up being lifetime for them. My parents built the house a couple of years after I went into the Air Force. Uh, if I would come home on leave, I would stay at their house. And then when I got out of the Air Force and got married, my wife and I stayed there until we found a place to rent in Cannon Falls. Dad was a very generous individual in town. He was very active uh, on the school board. Mm -hmm. I th he had 20-some years, I think, on the school board overall. Mm -hmm. Went through the period of time when they were consolidating the country schools with the city school mm -hmm. here. He helped a number of people start their businesses mm -hmm. in town. And now we have the Gemini Corporation, which makes plastic letters for signs. Dad was on their board of directors. And they uh, named the street they're on Mensing Way. 
There's also a park named after Don Mensing in town. He was a father, community figure, malt man, and musician. He'd eventually teach violin at McPhail Center for Music in Minneapolis, and as a young man, he'd walk to nearby towns and give lessons. Although Don had those roots in music, he couldn't have imagined that the family home that he would construct in the 1960s would eventually host world-famous rock stars. As any musician who later recorded at Pachyderm can tell you, one of the home's defining features is its indoor pool, the site of countless parties. The pool was built when the house was built. Dad and Mom really didn't want a pool, but the architect for it and the builder called Dad and Mom up to his office. They started discussing a pool, and Dad and Mom kept saying, we really don't want one. And, uh, well, what are you going to do with this space? You're going to buy a lot of furniture for it and then not use it? (laughs) And uh, I can put the pool in for what the furniture would cost. Why was he pushing the pool? (laughs) Well, he wanted a pool, or the the architect wanted a pool in there. And and I think you'll see when we get there. That it makes sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. The architect has an interesting backstory of his own. His name was Herb Bloomberg, Minnesota-born founder of the iconic Chanhassen Dinner Theater. Herb was clearly inspired by mid-century architects like Frank Lloyd Wright. The entire home looks straight out of Mad Men, if the Drapers were visiting a woodsy ski chalet, with clean lines for days, open floor plans, and lots of natural wood features. I thought he was really great. And, you know, he built the Chanhassen right after he built dad and mom's house and I know I remember one day dad said he went out there during the noon hour to see what had, progress had been made and here are these guys sitting on these timbers they're going to be part of the ceiling in the house this guy's sitting there with his jackknife cutting the corners off of the uh, edge of the beams and dad got all upset with him and he said what are you doing he says it's decoration that Herb wants That sounds like an architect. (laughs) So when you look up the beams, you take a look at the little notches. (laughs) Thank you, Herb. (laughs) Grandpa, he kind of was a strong personality, kind of a a Germanic upbringing, if you will. And um, and then to have a a creative force like Herb Bloomberg um, kind of override whatever you know, ideas well, that I, Grandpa I think had. he respected Herb's oh, okay. capabilities. Okay. Uh, he recognized that he himself was not a designer. Yeah. But Herb was, and they had looked at a number of his other houses before they went with him. Did Herb Bloomberg build this house? <laughs> yes. <laughs> The Mensings enjoyed picnics and holiday celebrations at the house, which they called Pine Glen after the Pine Creek that runs through the backyard. Just over 20 years after the Mensings moved in, Don and Marion both passed away. When they passed, we six kids got the property. And um, it being on the high market end of the scale was not a big seller. And in the meantime, we rented to a family. Finally, they, they moved out after a couple of years, and it was about the same time that Jim came along and mm. wanted to buy the property. When the Mensings sold the property, there was no separate structure for a studio yet, just the home. The community, anyway, is under the impression that the 
studio, the actual sound studio, is in that house. It is not. It's 100 feet away from it. Just driving in in the driveway and going to the front door, you would never see the studio. It's tucked in behind the trees and under a hill. Yeah, like around the house, it, kind of back into the woods. And it faces the area where Pine Creek flows through. The musicians Jim Nickel, Mark Walk, and Eric Anderson started building the studio in 1988 using a name and layout that riffed on their band at the time. Jim and Eric and Mark had a band called Mean Old Elephant before they decided to open a studio there. So it was called Mean Old Elephant and then Pachyderm Discs was the original name, you know, when discs was a thing you Jim must have had an elephant like yeah and if you look at the um what would it be the overhead uh layout like blueprint of the studio it's supposed to look like an elephant head like with the ears on the side that's Brent Sigmuth and Wendy Lewis. Brent is an engineer who grew up in Cannon Falls and ended up working at Pachyderm for eight years. And Wendy is a musician whose band Rhea Valentine were the first to record at the studio. I grew up 400 yards away from Pachyderm. And in high school, which would have been the mid-late 80s, before they bought it, we would walk down there um, we, meaning the band I was in, we practiced at my folks' house and we walked down there and we did that high school dreamer thing, you know, like, look at this vacant place. We could build a recording studio here. And then, you know, maybe a year later, my mom says, the new neighbors moved in. You should go take these cookies down and greet them. And so I walked down there and Jim Nickel answered the door. And I was like, I'm your neighbor. Here's some cookies. What are you guys doing? We're building a recording studio. So since then, Jim has has uh, always said that I, I willed it into being. One of Pachyderm's first customers was Soul Asylum, as their lead singer Dave Perner recalls. You sort of seclude yourself out there, and you, you don't do anything but focus on your record. And uh, that's a lot different than being in Manhattan and walking out of the studio and you're in the middle of Manhattan. I mean, I like seeing New Yorkers out there. I mean, we made a record with Steve Jordan, who's, you know, never gets out of the city. And uh, I just have so many fond memories of him going, let's go take a walk in the woods. And then him being, like, overwhelmed with the nature and going, God, you know, I've never seen this much sky before. And... The record Soul Asylum made with producer Steve Jordan was 1990s and The Horse They Rode In On. It was the first of three albums, including parts of their breakthrough release Grave Dancers Union, that they'd record at Pachyderm in the 90s. Looking back on that first visit, Perner says he went to some serious lengths to get the right vocal performance for the song Bitter Pill. Steve Jordan put me in the equipment closet and shut the door and turned the lights off and... Uh, you know, that was his producer move to get some serious <laughs> screaming rage out of me. And I don't think the other the other guys in the band really dug it that much, but that's kind of the way that, that he was. It's all one take, and I'm just, I'm screaming bloody murder. And uh, that's what he wanted, and that's what he got. Oh, 
other guys in the band were like, maybe you should try it again. Steve was like, no, that's, that's it. He, he captured the moment or something. The band would experiment in other ways during those sessions, such as for a B-side from the Horse They Rode In On era titled One Way Conversation. We're not short on, like, silly ideas and trying everything. I mean, the funniest thing I remember was trying to put a microphone way up in the trees, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we put a mic, like, way up in the trees and an amp outside and turned it up as loud as we possibly could. And you can really tell by listening to it. As Pachyderm began taking on more clients, Brent Sigmuth was wrapping up college, and Jim Nickel had a job ready for him back home. So I was living in St. Paul, and I went to Music Tech, which became McNally Smith, I think, and this was 92. So I went there for nine months, learned all the lingo, and, you know, found out what a compressor was and things like that. And then... um, was just sort of looking to get some sort of menial assisting job or something or work on my own music or whatever. Didn't even know what I was going to do. And a teacher from the school was like, the guy at Pachyderm is leaving. You should go down there and bring your resume. And I already knew Jim, who was my neighbor, and had been, you know, hung out there a bunch of times. It always seemed like it was, you know, too big of a step at that point. But I showed up, gave Jim my resume, and he was like, do you want the job? And he took me down to the studio. Do you know how to run all this stuff? And I kind of lied and was like, yeah, totally. Okay. And then that was it. And then I just started working there. Lived in the house at Pachyderm for about nine months. Our lease was up in St. Paul, so it was kind of a transition thing. And then I was kind of a caretaker, too, just to be on the grounds and take care of all the shoveling and garbage and errands. The first artist Brent Sigmuth recorded at Pachyderm was the folk singer Ramblin' Jack Elliott on sessions that would be released a couple of years later as South Coast. Spend one summer pleasant on the trail of Buffalo. That's, I guess that's kind of no, a I funny mean, that's story. that's kind of big deal. Because he came in and the guy who was managing the studio didn't know who he was, so he gave it to the guy who didn't know who had just started, which was me. Like, oh, you do this guy. He's a folk singer. You can record that. And I was like, who is it? Some guy named Ramblin' Jack Elliott. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I knew who it was. And, and I was like, okay, I can do that. And he showed up in his motorhome and re-recorded, and he was great, and... I stumbled my way through it, and two years later, it got a Grammy for Best Traditional Folk Album. It was the first record I, mean, I recorded. A, that, that's so, such a big deal. And it's what? been all uphill since. <laughs> Brent Sigmuth knows the rooms at Pachyderm as well as anyone. You know, there's something weird about the... There's a lot of wood, I think, poplar or birch or something, but a lot of studios don't have the huge windows, A lot of studios have, like, glass for the control room windows and maybe some for the isolation rooms, but this place just has these enormous, you know, bulletproof window panes. Somehow, it's not boomy, it's not too bright, it's, like, just sounds amazing. I mean, you can pull up a couple room mics on a drum set, and it's just like, oh, there it is, don't touch that. Yeah, and it's had a few pretty great recording consoles in there 
There was a Neve 8068 in there the whole time I was there, which is a classic 70s, just thick, meaty, harmonically balanced console. And now there's a API console in there. Great microphones the whole time. Uh, Studer tape machines, a lot of just gear. But the room, the main thing is that room, the the big live room, is just kind of sounds like no other. The timing was excellent for a studio like Pachyderm to come along. Through the 70s and 80s, rock records were increasingly sculpted in the studio. But by the 90s, the pendulum had swung back to bands craving a live feel. We'll hear more about how Pachyderm was poised to have a heyday in the grunge rock era right after this break. And we're back. So far, we've heard pachyderm stories from musicians, the mensings, and more. Engineer Steve Albini, who was behind the board for historic records, including In Utero and PJ Harvey's Rid of Me, is up next. He told us what he liked about working at pachyderm. A lot of recording studios are designed such that wherever you put anybody, it'll sound basically the same. And pachyderm was designed so that if you had a particular sound in mind, you could probably find a spot to record that sound. Like if you wanted a very dry, very dead sound, whatever you were recording, you could stick into one of the booths, the isolation booths. If you wanted a reverberant sound, you could stick them in the big live main room. If you wanted a very bright, ringy sound, then you could stick them in the granite room. And if you wanted a smaller room ambience, not as big and expansive as the main large live room, you could put somebody in the kitchen um, so that all, all of those options being available in one studio was actually very a, a very nice convenience for me. Albini's first visit to Pachyderm was for Sea Monsters, the 1991 album by The Wedding Present. I had done an EP with them in England, and um, my friends' bands had recorded at Pachyderm and were raving about the acoustics of the main recording space. And it seemed like a good idea for a traveling band, meaning a band coming from another country because it had the the residential house attached to it, you know, so they could crash there. And for an extended session, it's nice to have a, a spot where people can get away from each other and and have some degree of privacy and that sort of thing. Late in 1992, Albini returned to Pachyderm with another British artist, the singer-songwriter-guitarist P.J. Harvey, who'd released a highly acclaimed debut album earlier that year. Along with her bassist and drummer, she and Albini recorded the classic Rid of Me at Pachyderm. Her vocals for the songs that were more dramatic, that is where she was singing more, doing more dynamic range with her singing, going from loud to quiet or quiet to loud, whatever. Those were recorded in the large live room so that the ambient sound of the room would kick in as she was getting louder and it would give you a kind of a a psychological cue that she was singing louder because you'd hear the room reverberation open up. 
By 1992, Pachyderm had earned a reputation in the grunge rock community. Babes in Toyland visited Pachyderm that year to record their major label debut, Fontanelle, for Warner Brothers Reprise Records. Drummer Lori Barbero told me about their stay. And it was with Lee Ronaldo mm-hmm. from Sonic Youth. And it was really great because it was close to Minneapolis, but it was yet out of the city. And you got to stay there. You know, I mean, it was just something, especially when you're doing something as difficult as recording an album. It takes days. Instead of traveling and just all the disruption of going somewhere and then getting back there and settling in again, you just are settled in at the place. And it's a really cool modern mid-century house with an indoor pool. The pool is functioning at that yes. point? Okay. Mm-hmm. You could just stay there and then you could eat there. You didn't really didn't have to leave unless you wanted to get out of there, you know it. I don't even think that we had a manager at that time. It could have been Tim Carr, mm-hmm. our A&R guy, and he knows about everything. Uh, and so I'm guessing maybe it was him because we were talking, you know, with Lee Ronaldo and, you know, having somewhere else. So where, you know, instead of going somewhere else and staying in a hotel every night, you know, somewhere, you just get the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. And it was really super cool, except for that my room was haunted. But anyways. I want to hear about that. About that. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. How, tell me more. I took the one that was kind of away from everyone else. And it was kind of in the corner of the house. But there was a corner of that bedroom that wasn't by the walls. It was the furthest one away from the walls. But you'd go by there. And it was the temperature was like 20 degrees colder, and it was completely haunted. Like, I could feel sometimes when I was lying there, I could feel it go through me. Like, whoosh. I don't know if it, <laughs> you've ever experienced any crazy spirit going through you or something. And I just would think, it's all right. You know, it's cool as long as you don't do anything. So I don't really know what that was, but everyone said, oh, my goodness. You know, you could just, you could feel it. And then... When Nirvana recorded there, and I told them the whole... I was sitting in the living room with them telling the whole story. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, right, whatever. And one of the chairs that was next to the pool just went flying into the pool. What? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I was there. They were there. What did everyone do? Uh, They thought that I was doing something. They thought... Because I started laughing because I, I was like, thanks. Thanks for the props. I mean, it was just one of the chairs that was next to the pool that it was indoors. I just went plop. This wasn't the only time something like this is said to have occurred at Pachyderm. Brent Sigmuth and Wendy Lewis recalled another incident from the mid-90s. You played some pranks on people, Oh, yeah, right? we played pranks them for think sure. Yeah, you had to. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the experience. Oh, the best one which actually turned out to be kind of mean because the band was mad at us afterwards, was um, this band Hum. Uh, This was mid-'90s. We put a um, speaker in the woods and covered it, and I ran a speaker wire into the studio to this Akai sampler and had all these 
sounds in there, like leaves crunching and bears growling and babies crying. And, <laughs> and um, at the time, there was no, there was, you had to kind of take a flashlight to go between the studio and the house at night because it was really dark. So it was pretty easy to get people. And by after the first night, the band wouldn't walk up to the house unless they were all together for like the rest of the sessions. And then we told them at the end and they just about killed us. They were embarrassed, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I wasn't totally responsible for their anger. Discomfort. It was signed off by the this. producer. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be calling you. <laughs> Dave Perner of Soul Asylum certainly remembers running into the unexpected near Pachyderm. I very specifically remember taking a long walk in the woods and I heard this sound. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I couldn't figure out what the sound was. It was like white noise. There's a there's a creek or creek, if you prefer, going through the back. And the, and the water kind of opened up a little bit to a bigger spot. And there was, I feel like I'm not exaggerating, there was like 500 robins, like having a big old robin party get together. But it was really, really cool. I mean, I just, it was just one of those things where you're trying to get in a creative place and then you see something like that and it just, yeah, you ain't gonna find that in New York City. In the wintertime, things could get even more dramatic, as Steve Albini told us. It can, you know, just the hundred yards between the house and the studio can be slightly intimidating. (laughs) You do have to bundle up to get from one building to the next. There was one incident. I was recording Will Oldham, the Palace album, Arise Therefore. We recorded at Pachyderm. And uh, his brother Ned and David Grubbs were the other musicians there. We devised this bizarre game. We were in the swimming pool, which was had been dialed up to tropical heat so that it was basically a sauna with a swimming pool in it. One of us would go outside and come back with an armload of snow and dive into the pool, and then the snow would just sort of physically disappear into the pool because the pool was so warm. Every time somebody ran outside to grab an armload of snow and bring it back, the other two would jump out of the pool and try to shut the sliding door on them. So it was a sort of a game of tag to see if you could get into the pool with an armload of snow before the other two could lock you out. Albini's most high-profile client at Pachyderm was Nirvana. Lori Barbero says she actually recommended the studio to the band. I mean, I don't know if I'm 100%, but I know talking to Kurt and telling him he said he wanted to record an album, and he wanted to be somewhere that was very secluded because he didn't he was really hoping that he could be somewhere where he anything wasn't accessible i said well we were at this really great place it's about 45 minutes out of town in the middle of nowhere you get to stay there there's a kitchen it's there's a swimming pool and i said it was just really great and it's you know the the studio's good it's not some janky two-bit place. I guess it kind of went from there. And that was pretty fun because I hung out with them down there a few times. 
Albini and the band arrived in Cannon Falls in February of 1993, a time when Kurt Cobain's name was always in the news due to his sudden celebrity, his stormy romance with Courtney Love, his public struggle with substance use, and a record label waiting impatiently for the follow-up to Nevermind. When I'm working in the studio with a band, I prefer that it just be me and the band rather than having managers or record label people there. My experience is that those people, whatever their skills at business, they're typically not active participants in music. Like they're typically not musicians themselves, or if they are, they're long out of the culture of musicians. They tend to be critical in ways that are not helpful. There's a one aspect of the being secluded in Cannon Falls was that the specifically with Nirvana, um, Kurt had had problems with substance abuse and every junkie has a network of facilitators. It was kind of presumed that there were people in Minneapolis who would be eager to bring drugs to the band if the occasion arose. So the idea of having them, you know, an hour or so out of town was appealing to everyone in the band because it would put some drag on that kind of adventure and, you you know, it would be less likely that anybody would turn up. Kurt was in a critical period there where he wasn't using, but everyone was concerned that he might start using. It seemed like a good idea to keep him physically away from the people who would want to attach themselves to his story by procuring for him. Still, Nirvana didn't completely hibernate at Pachyderm. Lori Barbero became the band's tour guide. Then there was one day, because Steve Albini, who I knew, was recording them. Dave was doing drum tracks, and Kurt and Chris were like, we want to get out of here. What should we do? I said, Mall of America's not that far. And there's also Red Wing, which is filled with antiques. And I know Kurt loves antiques, this, that, whatever. So we we did a couple days of doing different things. But we we went to the Mall of America, and Steve said, guys, you shouldn't go to the Mall of America. You're going to be mobbed. People are just going to mob you if you go there. So it was Kurt, Chris, and I, and we went there. And Mall of America people don't really know anybody. I mean, it's just kind of everyone's just going to walk it around, mouth breathing and looking at all the stories, you know, and all that. One person came up to us and said, are you in Babies and And I said, yep. And then I was sitting with Kurt and, and Chris, but that was fun. But we went, I took them there because I told Kurt that there was a store there that I knew he'd really, really love. It was called Bare Bones. It had everything to do with skeletons you could buy a human skeleton it had like just like rubber fetuses it just had everything it was just bare bones it had maybe animal and stuff but i loved that store and i knew that kurt would love it so i went in there kurt bought a whole bunch of stuff uh it was thousands of dollars he wrote a check and i found out later he told me he said you know laurie they never even cashed my check and i said it's because his check with his name on it and his autograph sure yeah I want to say it was like $7,000 of stuff. Wow. But that's where you got the the human skeleton see-through with the wings. Or, you know, it didn't have the wings, but he put that on. At the he Mall of America. Yeah, I know. He incorporated it into his videos and his records and stuff. 
That was kind of cool. We did that. And then one time he really was craving McDonald's. So we went to McDonald's and Red Wing they went through the drive through And every time I go down there, I always look at the drive through and my heart misses a beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went to like some antique stores. There's one really big mall that we walk through. And I love the image of Nirvana antiquing in Red Wing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Girl loved antiquing. Nirvana were at the head of the 90s alt-rock gold rush when major labels were signing scruffy college radio bands in the hopes of finding another big seller. I would say there was a a percentage of people that it was the sound of that record that they liked, of In Utero, that they liked and wanted to come there. And then there was some people who were like, this is where Nirvana recorded. Make us sound like Nirvana. And that was kind of, that's kind of funny, you know. But there was... How do you do that? I know. You don't. (laughs) You just don't. Yeah. No, there was a a band, they were really into Nirvana. And I I charged them a dollar for every time they asked me a, a question about Nirvana. And they were totally into it. They were paying me dollars, like, and I was I bought lunch, and yeah, it was great. <laughs> that is kind of amazing, though, because you got to hang out with those guys for like what three weeks? Yeah, eighteen days. Yep. But it was, I mean, really, it was. PJ Harvey was there before Nirvana. Yeah. Um, who else? Soul Asylum, the Jayhawks, Trip Shakespeare. Golden Smog. Yep. Yeah. So really, it was Steve Albini that brought Nirvana to Pachyderm, and that gave it a huge boost. But he heard about it because of, you know, these other bands that had been there before, and he did the P.J. Harvey record there and the the, the wedding present. You know, it just seems like everyone in, in town knows about Pachyderm, and there's kind of mystery about yeah, it. But, or... Yeah, but it's always been really private people were like yeah. they knew it was there but they didn't you know you rarely would anybody like come in and nose around or anything it was right everyone's pretty respectful midwestern midwestern true <laughs> very minnesota oh i wouldn't want to stop in now and bother those those talented musicians or embarrass myself for all of the time Brent spent at Pachyderm, there's one story in particular that he loves to tell. It stars Grant Hart, the drummer from beloved Minneapolis punk trio Husker Du, who recorded his solo album there in 1999. I got a quick one that involves one of my favorite human beings, Grant Hart, who I did a record with called Good News for Modern Man. We went into the Hardee's to get something to eat, and there was a gal behind the counter, probably 16, 17, and Grant, you know, in his punk rock disheveled demeanor, walks up and goes, excuse me, is there a real monster in your monster burger? And she just looked terrified. And she was like, no. And he's like, okay, I'll have one of those then. <laughs> and and then he filled out the uh, employee comment sheet and said, your counter worker, you know, Alicia, saved my daughter's life. She deserves a raise. And put the comment card in the box and we left. <laughs> we used to joke that uh, Bigfoot was kind of our yes man. Like, what does Bigfoot think? Like he would peek in the window and give us a thumbs up or something. Yes man Yeti or something. Oh, Bigfoot is my herald. Oh. Good job, Grant. 
That vocal was amazing. Pachyderm wasn't just a place to make loud rock. Jazz trio The Bad Plus rented the space in the 2000s, as drummer Dave King told us. The Bad Plus did three records there. We did a record called Prague. I'll just get that out of the way because it's kind of fun because we brought in Tony Platt, the engineer who did like ACDC Back in Black. He's an English um, producer, engineer, who worked with Bob Marley in the 70s a lot as well. And then we also did For All I Care, a record that we featured all like contemporary classical music and then some pop things that Wendy Lewis sang. She's a singer from Minneapolis. And that record came out in 2008 uh, or 2009. And then we did a record called Never Stop in 2010. So we actually ended up working three three times at Pachyderm with, with um, it was a Pachyderm period there <laughs> for the Bad Plus. And uh, I've also done a record for Haley Bonner down there, The Lure and the Fox. I did a record down there for Mason Jennings. I was down there quite a bit in 2006 and 2007. I did his record called Bone Clouds. I did a record for a bassist, a jazz bassist who resides in New York now, named Chris Morrissey. And I think he wanted to work at Pachyderm, too, just because it has a great live room, a big, beautiful live room. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to use it in the Bad Plus. Wendy um, is a really old friend of mine, and Brent became a, a friend around those sessions, working with the Bad Plus. Uh, well, first with Haley Bonner. That's when I first met him, and I think that was right after they got married. I ended up getting along great with him. He's very quiet and dry, and she talks more. <laughs> and so it was kind of fun. Their dynamic was fun to work with. The Never Stop album, uh, we used Brent, who really knows the room, and he recorded and mixed it instead of just recording it's just a very natural-sounding album. You really just hear the natural acoustics of the room and in the drums and piano being in the same room. It sounds like an old, a little bit of like an old jazz record. It's got a, a very live feel to it. But by the mid-2000s, Pachyderm started slipping into a dark age. Greg Norman, an engineer who now works in Chicago with Steve Albini at Electrical Audio Studios, recalls a particularly disturbing visit. I did a session up there, I think, in 2000. Four or 2006, the place was kind of a shell of itself. They were keeping it clean and everything, but like a lot of the equipment wasn't working that well. And so it would be kind of a hit or miss if you'd, you'd grab an organ or like an amplifier or a microphone and plug it in and try using it. Um, it'd be like 50-50 if it would work. It was kind of just running on fumes at that point, it seemed like. But the, the band I was recording and I were super stoked about being there to record. Like it was, we had to like share a bathroom that was in someone else's bedroom because the one in mine, at least, the shower didn't drain. So it was kind of like we took over someone's abandoned Playboy mansion <laughs> and we're sort of discovering what worked and what didn't work. From 2006 to 2012, Pachyderm was owned by Matt Muller, a real estate investor with little practical studio experience. He and some friends tried to repair the main house, but the overall downturn in the music business, which was a byproduct of the Great Recession and the rise of affordable home studios, took a toll on Pachyderm's bookings. By 2011, the property was in foreclosure, and the studio was so infested with rodents, it needed to be fumigated. But don't worry, better days are ahead just after the break. 
and we're back. In the summer of 2011, the Pachyderm property sold for $370,000, having lost over two-thirds of its value in just five years. The new buyer, John Cooker, had trouble even getting a dumpster delivered for the studio overhaul because, as he told the Star Tribune, it had gotten such a bad reputation. We've mentioned the rodents and disrepair of late 2000s pachyderm, but all that changed within a few years of Cooker's takeover. Engineer Nick Tweitbach worked for Cooker at his CD Underbelly studio in Minneapolis, which is where Semisonic recorded their big hit Closing Time. CD Underbelly would eventually relocate to Los Angeles, but Cooker kept an eye on the Twin Cities market. First time I ever came to Pachyderm, I was at a coffee shop with John Cooker. It was the day of the open house. The bank was trying to sell it out of foreclosure. And he told me that he had the keys to Pachyderm. It was French Meadow, like 10 p.m. And we drove down here at 10 and walked around the house. When we came here that night after the French Meadow, it was crazy. And the trees were like touching the driveway. They were so overgrown. It got really run down. And so like the roofs were leaking. All the like worst nightmare kind of stuff like was happening. Like. I don't know if they were exaggerating, but people were saying the house should have been demolished. So that's kind of the state it was when John bought it. And the studio building was the same way. And so the first thing he did was tear the roofs off, put new roofs on, put water diversion systems in. It's a better starting point than just kind of putting Band-Aids on everything, which I think people had been doing in the past. Like, kind of have anxiety thinking about it back then. It's like every time we opened up a wall, it was like another thing. Like, no. Two years this house took to remodel. According to Greg Norman, that work paid off. Uh, And then the last time I was up there was maybe five years ago. And it was just after uh, that guy, John, I forget his last name, but he's from Los Angeles. He bought the place and refurbished it. I was actually just looking at a board they had installed up there that they wanted to sell. And I was just up there to sort of scope the board out to see if it was something uh, worth buying for, like, you know, someone I knew. And uh, got the whole tour of the place. And I was, you know, excited that someone was investing that much money into the place because it definitely needed it. And uh, that was kind of cool to see that they actually followed through. Well, I always feel like... Like, we have so much gear here, more gear than can be used sometimes, or most of the time. And a lot of people would say, well, that's, like, the best thing about this place. He knew, like, that part of, like, the sound aesthetics of things. Like, this kit sounds great on modern rock. This kit sounds great on punk rock. This kit sounds great on Americana. And this kit sounds great on everything, and, like, little things like that. And so, you know, so when it came to, like, the Gully Boys, I knew... They wanted it. I mean, we did that in like two days, like tracked it in one day and mixed it in one day. I picked a kit that I thought, you know, would fit that kind of grungy neo-punk kind of thing, which is like a vintage leady 1960s kit. Now that Pachyderm has been reborn, it's become a hub for emerging Minnesota talent. Major artists like Haley, Hippocampus, and Trampled by Turtles have recorded albums there in recent years. And in 2018, Minneapolis rock trio Gully Boys traveled down to Cannon Falls to record their critically acclaimed debut, Not So Brave. Members Nadira McGill, Kathy Callahan, and Natalie Clement told us about what they referred to as their Pachyderm staycation. 
We got there Friday night um, and immediately started recording until like two. Something like that. And then went to the house, which is wild, and went swimming in the house. So <laughs> big. You? Yeah, it's so big. It got renovated, but it got renovated to look like it did when it was built, so it looks still pretty. We sat in the same layout. spot as Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> There's like this famous picture of of the band, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in front of the fireplace. fireplace. Yeah, it's in front of the fireplace, and we were really excited to be there. Like, wow. <laughs> it kind of just so, fell into our laps. We didn't yeah. really pick it. Right. Yeah. We, we needed to record, and we already... Yeah. Well, it was a tour. We really needed to do it before the tour. Nick was super, super chill and made us feel like not the amateur babies that we were when we went in there. Mm-hmm. The person I was working for was a huge music head, and I told him we were touring Pachyderm, and he had, like, a heart attack. He was like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> Sadly, John Cooker passed away suddenly in 2015 and did not get to see his studio flourish in this new era. As Gully Boys told us, his longtime engineer and friend Nick Tweitbach is working hard to keep his memory alive. A photo of John Cooker hangs on the wall of Pachyderm's house. He, it sounds like he always keeps him in mind when he's recording. Like he's like, I'm going to make him proud with this, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think he mentioned that John would have really liked us, which yeah. was like, oof. Oh, oof. it was very Ouch, cute. That hurted. <laughs> yeah, that hurted <laughs> a lot. It was very cute. <laughs> they say you can't go home again. But in March of 2019, the Mensings returned to their old family home, many of them for the first time in decades. Hello! Hi! Hi! How's it going? Fine! This is the Mensing family. Yeah. I'm Dick. Dick and Nick. We've met uh, a I couple, think so. Yeah. We're at the start of the renovation. Yeah, a few years ago. It's well, Nick. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I'm Martha. We need to take our shoes off. Hi. While visiting Packeter, we watched the extended Mensing family get reacquainted with the space and chat with Nick Tweitbach. Do you remember <laughs> the chilled M&Ms that Grandma had? Yes, because we get them back in the, bu- yeah, in the like butler's pantry home. or whatever. And she'd always pull out the fun size M and M's, and we'd get those on the way out. Yeah, and they were yeah. in the refrigerator or freezer. They were always cold. Yeah. <laughs> At the time of this recording, Pachyderm Studio lives on. The last Cecilia heard when she was out reporting this story, Nick Tweitbach and Dick Mensing were talking about staging the next Mensing family Christmas at Pachyderm, just like they did in the good old days. The Current Rewind is produced by Cecilia Johnson. Michelangelo Matos is our writer, Marisa Morseth is our research assistant, and Brett Baldwin is our managing producer. Our theme music is Winging It by Laserbeak from the album Luther. John Miller engineered audio of the Mensing's visit to Pachyderm, and Michael DeMarc mastered this episode. Thanks to our guests Nick Tweitbach, Brent Sigmuth, Wendy Lewis, Steve Albini, Lori Barbero, Dave Perner, Dave King, Gully Boys, and the whole Mensing family, including Dick, Martha, Karen, David, Cindy, and Mary. If you like what you've heard in this episode, please go and give us a rating and a review on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. And you can go to thecurrent.org slash rewind to find transcripts and bonus materials, including a Cannon Falls photo gallery and Cecilia's full interview with Gully Boys. 
The current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current.